up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about safe sleep positioning for infants. No infant care items at all. Um, it should just be an empty crib with a fitted sheet. Um, the surface should be flat, firm mattress. We'll hear about what to expect in a neurological exam. At, at first, um, the exam is going to involve uh, getting history, and so that means asking a lot of questions and you might want to write down what your symptoms are. And we'll look back at two decades of advances in child health care with a pediatrics leader who is retiring soon. Anytime we have any type of a complication in a child, we put together a team to look very deeply into it. What is the explanation for this? What can we do to make sure that it doesn't happen again? All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear how to prepare for a neurological exam, and we'll look back at how child health care has evolved over the past couple of decades. But first, we'll talk about the importance of positioning babies properly for sleep. Upstate University Hospital has attained the National Safe Sleep Hospital Certification Program's highest designation called the Gold Safe Sleep Champion. This is a designation that shows a commitment to best practices and education on infant safe sleep. And here to tell us more about it is Michelle Jeske. She's a pediatric clinical nurse specialist at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So why is this such an important designation? So this designation um, recognizes Upstate um, as a leader in safe sleep in the community. Um, it recognizes our commitment to educating the community on safe sleep practices, on role modeling behaviors, and the cool thing about it is it carries the education in baby right through their first year of life. So we start with... Um, education and role modeling and resources um, in the newborn period at the Family Birth Center. That continues through Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital if the baby comes to us. And then it also is covered in our outpatient pediatric clinics um, to make sure that everyone is role modeling the same behavior and everyone is giving a consistent and clear message surrounding safe sleep environments. So you mentioned community. How, how big of a problem is safe sleep in the community of central New York? It's a significant problem here. Um, Syracuse and Onondaga County have historically been one of the highest in the nation for infant mortality related to unsafe sleep environments. Um, there was an article published on Syracuse.com about a year ago that talked about how over a seven-year period there were 31 infant fatalities from unsafe sleep environments. Um, in 2017, just last year, there were eight children total. Um, so, I mean, that brings us up to 39 children over an eight-year period, which is significant. That, that, I mean, eight is a small number, but that's huge for what you're talking about. These are children that are put to sleep uh, unsafely. Right. They're otherwise healthy children. Um, and the message that we want to get out to the community that these um, deaths can be preventable and there's tools and resources to help educate them on the best way to put baby to sleep. So what are the mistakes that people are making? The biggest mistake that we see in our community from our local data is uh, parents sharing a, a bed with their baby. Um, babies should always be in a separate sleep area designated for them. Um, a crib? A crib, a pack and play. A pack and play is a collapsible crib that can be portable. Um, they can take it with them when they travel. You can move it to other rooms of the house. Um, but it's 
just four sides with netting, usually so you can still see the baby. Um, there's no risk for suffocation anywhere, and they have a firm surface that sits in the bottom of them. Um, any device that is a firm, flat surface and separate from the parent. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics does recommend that the baby sleep in the same room as the parent for at least the first six months, if not the first year. Um, but they should be sleeping in a, on a separate sleep surface. So it's best to put the pack and play, bassinet, crib, um, whatever surface it may be in the parent's room. Um, but babies should never sleep in the same bed as the parent. Do you see where, uh, is it, I guess, dangerous to fall asleep on the couch with the baby or? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the other things that we see, um, parents are exhausted. They, you know, babies don't sleep all the time as, as well as we would like them to be. And um, especially in that newborn period, um, these parents are just so tired. And I think it's it's easy to, to this, you know, fall asleep or, or sit in the recliner with baby, um, you know, while you're watching a movie or talking with friends or laying on the couch, baby falls asleep, and you think, you know, I'm awake, I'm watching the baby, everything's safe, but then you're exhausted yourself and then you doze off, and that's, that's where it, it can put the baby at risk. Okay. Uh, and then SIDS, too? Is that an issue? Yes. So, so when I talk about uh, sleep-related deaths, I'm referring to SIDS, so sudden infant death syndrome, um, accidental, accidental suffocation, and accidental strangulation. Okay, so that's all encompassed. It's all under the umbrella of sleep-related deaths, yes. Well, let's look at it the other way. What does a safe sleep environment look like? Instead of pointing out mistakes people are making, what are, what are people doing right? Mm -hmm. How, what is the safe way to put a baby to sleep? Safest way to put baby to sleep is in an independent sleep space, so pack and play, crib, bassinet. Um, the sleep environment should be empty, so no bumper pads, no stuffed animals, no loose blankets, um, no, um, no infant care items at all. Um, it should just be an empty crib with a fitted sheet. Um, the surface should be flat, firm mattress. Um, no bump. I think people pick those things, you know, maybe thinking bumper pads, they don't want the baby to hit the, their head or um, blankets, they don't want the baby to get cold. Mm -hmm. I mean, people have good reasons Absolutely. for seeking those things, but that's not Absolutely. recommended. There, there's alternatives that are safer. So bumper pads were initially developed because old standards of cribs, there were large gaps in the slats of the cribs. Um, so bumper pads were made to fill in those gaps to prevent injuries at the time so um, the child wouldn't get stuck in between the slats. Um, newer crib standards, those slats are now smaller in size to prevent injuries from happening. Um, but the bumper pads cause two challenges. One, um, the child could get stuck up against the bumper pad. Um, and not be able to protect themselves. Um, and there's also strings on, on bumper pads right. Right, that connect them to the crib. Um, so bumper pads aren't needed anymore. Um, they're still sold um, in crib sets, and I think that's one of the challenges that families see when you go to register for your new baby that you're bringing home. You want your nursery to be everything you dreamed of and the crib sets typically come with um, a fitted sheet which is great we want that um, maybe a, a dust ruffle or a crib skirt of some sort that's fine that's safe um, but then they also come with the bumper pads and they come with um, a quilt of some sort that is 50 times the size of the child <laughs> um, and really has no no purpose um, so I'll save everybody a lot of money just by <laughs> a fitted crib sheet because um, that's that's really all that's all you need um, how do you keep the baby warm then if you're not going to use the quilt so you can swaddle the baby and swaddle blankets um, there's no recommendation whether arms in or out either way is safe um, 
but the swaddle should be below the chest, ideally, so you're not swaddling over the mouth at all or the face. Um, there are also what's called a wearable blanket available. Um, so this is um, a blanket where baby wears jammies or clothes underneath it, and the blanket... Um, you kind of zip it's, them into it? Or you do. It, it's like a little sack that you put them in. It has uh, little armholes. Sleep sack. It's a sleep sack. Okay. Yep. yep. And they, right. they zip her up the front, um, but that's something that they can wear, they can't get tangled up in, um, and it can keep them warm. And they come in different materials, so you can use a warmer material um, in the wintertime to make sure the baby doesn't get too cold. Great, great. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with pediatric clinical nurse specialist Michelle Jeske about safe sleep. Um, so what are some of the um, new resources that are available through the Children's Hospital for families regarding safe sleep? Um, so we educate every family who comes in under one year of age on infant safe sleep. We also screen every baby um, to make sure that they have a safe sleep environment at home, to make sure that they have a crib or a pack and play or a bassinet of some sort for the baby to sleep in. If they don't have a safe spot for the baby to sleep, then we will give them a pack and play um, to take home, brand new pack and play, um, so that, you know, baby has a safe area to sleep in. Um, the Family Birth Center also does this. They have them available. Um, and then we will have sleep sacks available through the Children's Hospital in the near future. We currently use them on our inpatient units. Um, we've tried to replace uh, baby blankets with the wearable blankets. Um, the Family Birth Center, they have replaced all of their blankets with the sleep sacks, and they give out a new sleep sack with every discharge of every mm -hmm. birth at the Family Birth Center. Um, so th those are nice programs to give resources to the community. We want to make sure that every every baby is safe and every family has the tools to do that. Now, and we're talking about infants up to age one, or does yes. this go further? This goes up to age one. Age one. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that this is not just a newborn problem. The highest risk that we see in our community is two to four months. So I think um, sometimes... Uh, parents forget about keeping these practices going e through that first year of life. So okay. e even older infants can be at risk. Well, um, and maybe this gets past the one year, but it, at what age is it safe to let a baby have like a stuffed animal or a comfort item in bed? They, they shouldn't have any items like that in bed while they're sleeping. Um, under one year of age. I think a lot of times as parents, we introduce those, um, you know, toys, the security blankets, stuffed animals. Um, we introduce them much earlier than we need to. Um, they make us happy, so we think that they'll make the baby happy. Um, but they're, they're not necessary when baby's sleeping. You know, when baby's awake, supervised, playing, absolutely. You can... Um, play with them with all those toys, give them any of that stuff. But once they fall asleep, those things should be removed from their from their crib. Okay. And after um, it, after the one year, then maybe, I mean, a child can sleep with a stuffed animal Absolutely. once they're older and able to turn and move on their own. Right, right. We okay. want to make sure that they're old enough to, to move around in the crib, protect themselves if they were to get stuck in a... Um, in a situation, you know, with either a stuffed animal or a bumper pad or something like that, um, you know, it, it takes time for infants to develop those um, stronger neck muscles and strength overall to be able to protect themselves. Great. Well, I don't want to run out of time before asking what advice you have about purchasing a safe crib. Really, all of the cribs that are available now meet the safety standards. Um, so if you buy one new now... Absolutely, it's absolutely. Um, parents should avoid any cribs that are older than about 10 years. Um, there should be no uh, drop sides on the cribs. Um, but, I mean, if, if space is a concern or um, they don't have the money for a crib, a pack-and-play will serve the exact same purpose. Um, and sometimes... That's even a nicer alternative because you can move it around to different areas. You can fold it up and take it with you. Um, but that that is just as safe as a crib. 
Well, good to know. Thank you very much for being here. My guest has been Michelle Jeske, the Advanced uh, Practice Resource Nurse for Pediatrics at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, preparing for a neurological exam on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Larry Chin, Chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery, is here to explain what to expect when you or a loved one must undergo a neurological exam. Well, first of all, I think the most important thing before you have an exam like this is to take a deep breath and try not to be scared because it can be uh, very anxiety-provoking to see a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. Uh, generally, you're referred because your doctor wants some more advice, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a terrible problem that you have. Um, at, at first, um, the exam is going to involve uh, getting history, and so that means asking a lot of questions, and you might want to write down what your symptoms are, paying attention to how long you've had them, what they feel like, uh, what things might make them better or worse. Uh, you'll want to have an idea of your family history, so any relevant problems uh, that might exist in your family, certainly um, any recent illnesses that uh, you may have had, and always try to bring a list of medications if possible. Uh, After the the history part, uh, you're going to get an exam, and there are a few key portions of the exam. Uh, The first is an assessment of your mental status, so there may be questions Uh, testing your memory um, or your ability to speak or to understand. Um, We then look at what we call the cranial nerves, which are the nerves that affect primarily functions involving your head. So for instance, your your eyesight, uh, the sense on your face, the way you can move your face, uh, your hearing, um, your speaking, uh, those types of things. Um, And this might involve shining a light in your eyes. and, all, and looking into the back of your eyes. Uh, after that, there's usually a, a motor exam where we're checking the strength in your uh, arms and legs and also whether you have any atrophy in your muscles uh, and if you have any abnormal um, movements in your arms or legs. Uh, the sensory exam occurs after that uh, and might involve uh, uh, touching lightly on the skin uh, and it could involve perhaps using a safety pin to see if you can detect uh, a sharp, uh, uh, slightly painful sensation. The reflex exam usually generally follows, and that's where uh, a small uh, rubber hammer is used to tap uh, on different joints in your body to, uh, to test your reflexes. And then lastly, uh, we usually finish with an assessment of your walking ability uh, and your coordination. Uh, once all of these parts of the exam are done, uh, there may be further tests that are done, and that could involve either some blood tests, uh, it could involve uh, imaging studies such as an MRI scan or a CAT scan, and sometimes there are um, electrical type tests, either an EEG or maybe stimulation of the nerves and muscles in your body. Uh, But those are generally the things that um, occur with a neurological exam. And it's all designed for the neurologist or neurosurgeon to help uh, your doctor um, figure out uh, if there's something that needs further treatment. Coming up next, the successes and continuing challenges in child health care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. 
State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Tom Welch is the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and the medical director for the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, and he'll be retiring later this year. So we asked him to look back at the child health care successes and the ongoing challenges during his time at Upstate. Thanks for being here. Great to be here, Amber. It seems like only yesterday I was being interviewed as the new chair. It does. <laughs> well, you graduated medical school back in 1973, and then you did a residency in pediatrics and two fellowships in pediatric nephrology. That's 45 years of practicing medicine, and I'd like to start by asking what you've enjoyed most in your career. Well, I think in the final analysis, any pediatrician would tell you that taking care of patients and becoming involved in the lives of patients and their families is really the most gratifying thing. I certainly have had successes and fulfillment in the research, teaching, and administrative part of my career, uh, but the one common thread throughout it all has been the fundamental business of taking care of sick children. And one of the things I really enjoyed about my position here is that in many larger institutions, it's almost impossible for a department chair or hospital medical director to continue to have an active practice. But I've been fortunate enough here that in addition to everything else, um, I take care of children regularly. Neat. Well, during your tenure, the biggest or at least the most visible um, change in child health care in central New York has been the development of the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. And I'm guessing that you never imagined when you were in medical school that one day you would help design a children's hospital, right? Uh, I think that's probably right. There were a lot of things I didn't envision in medical school, and that was certainly one of them. Okay. Uh, this project consumed many years of your professional life, though, right? So It, it, it certainly did. In fact, uh, Amber, this was one of the things that made it take so long for me to accept the position here. At the time I came to Syracuse, I was working at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is a large, freestanding, very well-known children's hospital. And the idea of coming to a city that not only did, didn't have a children's hospital, but where there were actually inpatient pediatric beds in three separate hospitals uh, was a bit daunting to me. Um, so I, I really was quite clear that I did not intend to finish my career working in a setting like that, and that one of the reasons for coming here would be to have the opportunity to really start with a clean slate and build a children's hospital. So it really took a couple of years in working with Dr. Eastwood, who was the president at the time, uh, for me to feel comfortable enough that we would be able to do this when I was here. Is it like you envisioned it and wanted it to be? Has it turned out that way? You know, it's, it's amazing. If you talk to people who have ever built anything, inevitably they're going to have horror stories about it. Uh, Greg Mayer is the architect who designed the uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, he uh, actually is out on the West Coast now, and serendipitously I just ran into him at a party actually, uh, quite a ways away from Syracuse. And we got talking about things, and I said, you know, Greg, if you were to ask me now, and this was probably six years from the time the hospital opened, um, what would you do differently? I honestly couldn't come up with anything. I, I think that the hospital, at least structurally and operationally, um, really came out just the way that we had hoped it would. Neat. Well, and it's, it's more than just the structure, though, as well, right? Can you Absolutely. talk about um, how having this hospital has changed sort of the, the types of specialties that we're able to offer? And Sure. The uh, reality today is that specialty pediatric care, and by specialty pediatric care, I'm talking about things like kidney disease and cancer and cystic fibrosis, those really subspecialized disorders that require very specialized care. It's increasingly difficult to attract the specialists who deliver that care, the pediatric specialists and the surgical specialists who deliver that care, uh, because we're competing with centers throughout the country where that type of care is really being consolidated. Um, so totally separately, but hand in hand with the development of the Children's Hospital, we nearly tripled the number of pediatric medical and surgical subspecialists working in Syracuse. 
uh, and we really brought them from major centers all over the country. Um, and, and really, one thing couldn't happen without the other. If it were not for the development of the Children's Hospital, we never would have been able to bring in those sorts of people. On the other hand, without those sorts of people being here, then the Children's Hospital would just be an empty shell. Neat. Well, and it means that uh, more people don't have to leave central New York to get care for these sorts of conditions. That's very true. Uh, many children's hospitals of our size, especially if they're near larger metropolitan areas, uh, experience a, a movement of some children to other larger centers. Uh, and I think for two reasons, we rarely see that here. One reason, frankly, is that we're far enough away from the other major children's hospitals like Boston and Philadelphia uh, that most people would not go there were it not for one highly specialized service that we just don't offer. So I think the combination that we're able to offer virtually everything here and the fact that we're a ways away from those centers means that the only families that really need to travel out of Syracuse are the very rare situation in which there is something that's just so unique and so focused that we need a center that has more experience with it. Interesting. Um, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the chair of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and medical director of the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, Dr. Tom Welch. Um, let's talk, as, as you're looking to, to retire, let's talk about what some of the ongoing challenges for healthcare are in central New York and in the region and in the nation. Sure, and, and I'm glad you framed it that way because there are challenges that are unique to Syracuse and Onondaga County, challenges that are unique to our region, uh, and challenges that are unique nationally. And there's some uh, areas in which we share challenges and, and others in which we're unique. So to start with Syracuse, um, I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is uh, certainly that the increasing impact of childhood, emotional, behavioral, mental illness is becoming a real challenge here. Uh, this was starting to become a problem around the time that I came, but several things happened after I got here to make it worse. Uh, it was only a few years after I was here that a major inpatient child psychiatry unit, the Four Winds Hospital, closed rather suddenly, and that immediately took 64 inpatient child psychiatry beds uh, out of the mix. Uh, Hutchings Psychiatric Center has an excellent pediatric program, uh, but that has had to back off on the number of beds and its availability of services. And along with that, the availability of outpatient providers for children's mental health services, while lately we've experienced a very gratifying uptick, uh, is still not where it should be. So we have those uh, structural and personnel factors in terms of the delivery of children's mental health care. But then along with that, we have the national issue of mental illness uh, seemingly having exponential growth in, in children. And we have certainly experienced that here in the same way that people have throughout the country. So the combination of experiencing the growth in children's mental health disorders uh, with some drop in ability to deal with them has been a real challenge. Fortunately, uh, we have uh, begun to address that as most of our listeners know, uh, we will be opening an inpatient uh, child psychiatry unit as part of the Children's Hospital. It's a bit separate geographically, but it's really part of our services. Um, that will only take care of a small number of the inpatient needs, but uh, that certainly is there. We're hoping to be able to work with the state to improve the breadth and the volume of services that are being offered at uh, Hutchings. And we're soon going to open a new inpatient unit uh, for the very unique subset of children that have very severe behavior disorders as a consequence of mental illness or developmental disability. This is a another real problem. It's not as massive because the numbers of children are smaller, uh, but it creates a, a huge problem because actually in the entire state of New York, 
there's not an inpatient facility for such children. So uh, children not just from Syracuse, but Rochester, Albany, New York City, uh, wind up going to Massachusetts, to Maine, to Rhode Island, to Maryland for that care. Uh, but because we have some expertise in those problems, uh, the State Office for People with Developmental Disabilities uh, has asked us to partner with them to open an inpatient unit. Uh, we're actually working with an architect now and hope to have that within the next year. Now oh, that's exciting. So um, regionally, we've seen some hospitals that are no longer providing pediatric care. So has that been an impact? Sure, and, and that's uh, an example of kind of moving from the local area to regionally. Uh, and certainly, we cover a region generally of about 22 counties and their uh, roughly 17 hospitals in that area. I say roughly because our referral area uh, kind of varies uh, depending on the specialty, but uh, roughly 17 hospitals. Um, and when I started here, virtually all of those hospitals had small inpatient units, uh, so children with reasonably common problems, uh, asthma that's a little bit uh, challenging to manage as an outpatient, but not severe enough to require intensive care. Uh, dehydration that responds to some intravenous fluids. Most of our regional hospitals were able to take care of those children. Uh, one by one, regional hospitals have stopped doing that. And what that has done, we really designed the hospital and had approval from the state for the size of the children's hospital uh, based on the level of activity we were seeing in the early 2000s, 2002, 2003. Uh, fast forward to 2018, we're now seeing many, many more children with problems that a decade ago would have been cared for in local communities that are now coming to us. So we always got the children with leukemia and the children with uh, major trauma, but now those children with asthma and even problems like appendicitis that typically were handled in regional hospitals are starting to come here. I don't think there's any question that this is good for children. Um, certainly having your uh, appendix taken out by a pediatric surgeon with a pediatric anesthesiologist and an entire team of people that are used to and comfortable working with children uh, is better than having it done in a remote location, perhaps without that type of expertise. Uh, but that creates a demand for the family to have to travel for Syrac to Syracuse for that. Um, and it certainly impacts our activity and makes us even busier. Uh, well, let's talk about what you, uh, nationally, what do you think the, the biggest issue is for in child health care? Sure. I think if you were to ask almost any academic pediatrician that question, they would have one answer, and that is poverty uh, and the development of health disparities. Uh, we, we were actually having a discussion today of a very complicated child uh, who with a partner hospital we successfully treated for an incredibly complicated problem. And that incredibly complicated problem probably wouldn't have occurred in Europe because the healthcare system there is such that the problem would have been recognized much earlier and dealt with. But we have the dilemma in the United States of the ability to offer incredibly high-tech, sophisticated care uh, but our outcomes nationally are actually a bit of a disgrace. Uh, for example, the infant mortality rate, which is the number of children under the age of one that die per thousand, is 5.8 in the United States. So overall in the United States, 5.8 children out of every thousand die before their first birthday. Uh, this is between uh, Bosnia and Serbia. It's, it's around 60th uh, um, wow. in the world. Uh, and that is, uh, Japan, for example, has an infant mortality rate of two. Uh, France, uh, I think it's a little bit over three. And that number, 5.8, uh, is actually even worse than you might think because states that have higher degrees of poverty, let's take uh, Alabama and Mississippi, for example, have infant mortality rates of about nearly twice that, around eight or nine. Uh, on the other hand, states where poverty is not quite as concentrated, New York and California, uh, have infant mortality rates that are in the low fours. So you can argue about 
why this is, but the one common denominator seems to be that children who grow up in poverty uh, are exposed to more environmental agents, uh, their families may be a bit more stressed, they don't have the resources to get regular pediatric care. So I think this continuing challenge of poverty and social distress as a major contributor to childhood mortality and childhood morbidity is something that we as a nation really need to come to grips with. And we have issues with that here in our community. Absolutely. Syracuse, Uh, Syracuse, as you know, know, we can argue about the specifics, but uh, Syracuse is certainly ground zero for poverty. And uh, similarly, uh, although again, there's some confusion about the data, but one childhood illness that's a marker of, or that is uh, an indicator of poverty is uh, lead levels. And certainly Syracuse being an area with uh, fairly widespread poverty uh, is also an area in which uh, lead levels tend to be a little higher than other places in the country. And, you know, I see this every day in the hospital. If you look uh, Asthma, for example, is one of the most common disorders that leads to hospitalization in children. And yet, if you go through our hospital, you'll find that the vast majority of children hospitalized with asthma um, are covered by Medicaid or government insurance, which is a surrogate for um, poverty or a a lack of wealth. Uh, uh, These children receive excellent care in the hospital, but the point is, Asthma as a disease affects children from all socioeconomic groups, Uh, but it seems that children that don't have the burden of poverty uh, are able to have their asthma managed in the outpatient setting and don't wind up being hospitalized. There's another uh, thing which I think you'll find, uh, many of us uh, find extremely distressing nationally, and that's actually a bit of a, of a backstep. You know, one of the greatest advances in uh, health care for children in the past 50 years or so uh, has been the elimination of many, many very serious diseases by immunization. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, polio predated my medical training, but if you talk to Uh, The grandparents of many people listening, they have terrible memories of children in schools being decimated by polio. When I was a uh, resident in pediatrics, one of the most common conditions leading to admission to the hospital uh, was meningitis uh, from a couple of different bacteria, pneumococcus and haemophilus influenza. Uh, Both of those have largely disappeared. I don't think we've had a child with haemophilus meningitis here Uh, in a couple of years, uh, and yet it was something that we would see a couple of cases a month. So on the one hand, immunizations have been incredibly successful in lowering the burden of disease. Unfortunately, there has been, and this is largely unique to the United States, uh, this bizarre movement away from immunization that's largely driven by folks who really don't know and appreciate the science and unfortunately is amplified by the media and celebrities. So we're actually backstepping a bit and starting to see epidemics of measles Measles. and mumps and conditions that long ago had disappeared. And, uh, you know, really for a pediatrician looking back on a career, um, I, I certainly would not have thought when I graduated from medical school in 1973 that in 2018 I would be moaning Uh, the rebirth of diseases that we thought we had eliminated. Well, for immunization, I mean, that is a good success that you've seen for people who follow through and get immunized. Let's talk about some of the other major successes that have happened during your career. I mean, childhood cancers. Sure. I I think that uh, childhood cancer is a a great example. Uh, And and I was really very fortunate to be on the cusp of this uh, in the early 1970s, Uh, We were just beginning to have some success with childhood leukemia, the use of uh, steroids and vincristine, methotrexate, some of the first drugs that were available and interestingly are still used. That was just coming around. Uh, You know, we've reached the point now where the diagnosis of leukemia for most children, while clearly it's devastating for a family to hear that their child has cancer, uh, but the expectation can be complete cure. Uh, and we've been able to do that, not just by throwing new drugs at it, but by doing 
basic science investigations that have recognized, for example, that leukemia is not just one disease. Leukemia is actually a host of different types of diseases caused by different cells and different genes. Uh, and as we recognize that more and more, we can begin to tailor therapy toward it. So the, the incredible advances uh, in that area have been, have been really very, very important. Uh, similarly, organ transplantation. Uh, I'm involved, uh, obviously, in kidney transplantation because that's my uh, kidney disease in children is my specialty. Uh, and today, uh, you know, we are fortunate to have in our kidney transplant program right here in Syracuse uh, virtually 100% uh, one in five year gra uh, kidney transplant survival in children, which is, uh, again, something that a couple of decades ago, we were doing transplants a couple decades ago. Uh, but certainly not with the sophisticated medications now that can modulate the immune system and keep children from rejecting their, uh, their transplant. I, I think the other thing that's been an advance, although uh, it's, a, it's an advance to, to treat a, another problem, uh, has been the management of trauma. Uh, we have uh, been very blessed uh, here in Syracuse to have an excellent uh, trauma program both for adults and children. In fact, we were the first hospital in New York State to be accredited by the American College of Surgeons as both a pediatric and an adult uh, trauma center. Uh, and the expertise that we can bring to children who have devastating injuries, uh, even ones that occur in the remote uh, areas of our referral area, Ogdensburg and places like that, um, it, it's really remarkable the combination of pediatric surgery, trauma surgery, uh, support from neurosurgery and orthopedics uh, that we can really successfully treat these children and rehabilitate them. On the other hand, trauma is also a function of poverty. <laughs> and you find that uh, many of our children who are most severely affected by traumatic injuries, uh, trauma is, or, uh, poverty is one of the antecedents of that. Huh, okay. And then there's also been some improvements in hospital quality and safety under your tenure. Yeah, there sure has, and, and that's another thing that I was uh, very excited to be able to bring to Syracuse. Uh, you know, people think of hospitals as a place to go when you're sick and place to get well, uh, but sadly, hospital care in the United States uh, has been recognized increasingly as unsafe. Uh, there's a report by the Institute of Medicine many years ago uh, that claimed somewhere around 80 to 90,000 people a year die in the United States from medical errors. Again, people quibble about that number. Maybe it's higher, maybe it's lower, uh, but it really is not what it should be. And children are particularly susceptible to medical errors. Their small size uh, gives one much less uh, uh, margin for error, if you will, in things like drug doses and that sort of thing. Um, so we were really uh, here at Golisano uh, pioneers in incorporating a lot of the patient safety technology in what we do. We have participated now for many years in some national consortiums that uh, take a very careful and transparent look at everything that we do. So we track and publicize our hospital-acquired infection rates and our blood clotting rates and falls, all of these indicators that, that there are problems. And literally any time we have any type of a complication in a child, we put together a team uh, not to establish blame, but to look very deeply into it. What is the explanation for this? What can we do to make sure that it doesn't happen again? So uh, from something that a decade and a half ago people were just starting to talk about, we now have a physician patient safety officer. We have a couple nurses involved in patient safety, and we have whole teams, including parents, uh, that are working with us to improve patient safety. So, right, because there's a parent council, really, that gives some advice on on the hospital experience, right? Absolutely, yeah, we, we have uh, two levels of community involvement, and really one of the things when I first started talking up the idea of a children's hospital in the community, I wanted people to appreciate it was going to be a community resource, and we were asking for money from the community, but we also wanted to get their support and feedback. So we have a community advisory council that's a group of leading citizens in the, the community 
uh, Steve Fournier from uh, Key Bank and Teresa Underwood from Channel 9 um, are two of the major figures, the president and the president-elect of our Children's Hospital Council, Advisory Council. So they provide us kind of high-level advice and recommendations on programs and help us in a variety of ways. Uh, but we also have more uh, foot-on-the-ground type of uh, a service from a family advisory council that's made up of parents of children that are currently or recently in the hospital. Uh, and they give us very direct feedback on what's going on. Um, I personally walk through the hospital several times a week and just randomly walk into rooms and talk with families and uh, try to get a sense of what their concerns are and what we can be doing better. No neat. Well, I know also um, you've had sort of a side career in wilderness medicine. Um, is that something you plan to continue in retirement? Uh, that's a, a funny story. Actually, just a couple days ago, I, I had an email from a potential client uh, who uh, heard that I was retiring and uh, wants me to guide uh, him and his family on a trip in the uh, Adirondacks. <laughs> Uh, in fact, last week I was at a meeting in Texas of outdoor educators giving a workshop on some of this. So, yes, uh, outdoor activity has been a passion of mine, mountain climbing, kayaking, canoeing, uh, and I certainly hope to pursue that in some way in retirement. Um, I obviously want to pursue just uh, sitting on the beach or by the lake in the Adirondacks as well. So that'll be part of it. But will you? would you be a guide? Oh, oh, certainly. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, any of your listeners that are interested, it's Adirondack.com. Adirondack, D-O-C, Adirondack, dot, dot com. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Dr. Tom Welch, the medical director of Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital and the chair of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. And we wish you well in retirement. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Lucia Gagliese is an associate professor at York University in Toronto. There, she studies pain, aging, and end-of-life care. I can only read you an excerpt from her remarkable short story about being present with and for a friend who's dying. Here is a portion of A Bereavement Imperative. The first thing, and this is crucial, is to forget what you are trained to do. Stop being a pain researcher, a palliative care scientist, and just be with your dying best friend. You don't have to be professional or stoic or have any answers. You can be scared or sad or angry. You can even hope it all ends quickly, but don't say that out loud. The afternoon, they finally tell him there is nothing left to do. Walk into his hospital room the same way you have every day for the last six months, a little breezy, a little concerned. Do not burst into tears when he looks at you that way and asks, how are you doing with this? If you do, just hug him, cry together. Nobody can make it better this time. Back at your desk, try to work. Admit you can't. Everything is about him. Every paper, every task, every thought. Work will not be your escape this time. Wonder what fool notion made you want to study the end of life. Don't explain this away as death preparation or anticipatory grief or death anxiety. There is nothing for you in all that data, all those meaningless statistics massaged into significance. Now it's time to start saying goodbye. You can't. You won't be able to do it all at once. So start by telling him what he's meant to you. Expect to abandon the effort a few times. It's hard to sum it all up. Try anyway. You may even say something coherent. It's fine if you don't. Forgive yourself. Maybe just stick to history. Tell him stories. Keep it light. Start that first day of kindergarten when he let you get in front of him in the line for the slide. Then grade by grade, conjure the teachers and students. Wonder where they are now. Schoolyard games, gymnasium dances, his first motorcycle. 
What were you thinking, you both say over and over, laughing until tears stream down your cheeks. Don't feel guilty. Say, I just want this to be easy for you. He says, you've spent your whole life making it easier for me. Thank you. One morning, his wife tells you he's not making sense. He keeps talking to someone named Wayne. Don't tell her that Wayne was one of the little kids in your circle of friends, the one who disappeared after grave six after grade six. Be reassured that your dying best friend is seeing your long dead friend. Take pleasure in the idea of them hanging out again, skateboarding through the afterlife. Imagine joining them. When he tells you that Wayne visited, nod and say, that's nice. I haven't seen him since we were kids. Do not crumble when he says he misses you. Fine, crumble, but just for a minute. Understand watching him that this is it. There are only a few hours left. You are finally ready to say goodbye. And so is he. Hug him. He whispers, Wayne's here, next to you. He's waiting. Keep breathing. Say, you and Wayne go ahead. I'll catch up. You sure? Yeah, I got girl stuff to do first. He smiles at that old excuse he's never understood and you've never explained. And then he says, we love you. Say, I love you guys too. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, everything you need to know about colorectal cancer. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.